Hello and welcome back to episode 31 of the Game Biz Podcast. I'm your host, Poe. This week's news, I'll be covering a lot of previous news topics. You know, it's going to be sort of like an update to the previous type of podcast. Let's get started, shall we? So first news item, update on Starbreeze's financials. They have also shared their second uh, quarter results for 2021. This is from gamesindustry.biz by Danielle Partis. I'm really only going to be following Starbreeze to see how well they are recovering from their almost bankrupt situation, which I covered on episode 21. And you can listen to that after this episode if you want to know more about Starbreeze and why they are such a fascinating case. So for the three months ended June 30th, 2021, net sales for the firm reached $3.6 million, a 2.3% increase year over year. Sales were partly driven by the launch of Payday 2 City of Gold expansion. What's very concerning to me is that their earnings before income tax, depreciation, and amortization dropped from $1.7 million in Q2 2020 to a staggering minus $5.9 million, which is a 433% decrease year over year. Losses before tax also increased by 832% this quarter to a negative $9.1 million compared to a negative $972,458 the same period last year. Starbreeze says this steep decline was attributed to the one-off effect of a licensing agreement around payday crime war. So I checked the article about this. And back in April, the company announced it had signed a new deal with mobile publisher PopReach. All that was mentioned was that PopReach will cover all costs for development, marketing, live operations, and user acquisition going forward. It will also receive the source code for Crime War and access to pay to 2 content, but Starbreeze retains all IP rights. And as part of the deal, Starbreeze will receive an upfront payment of $250,000 and tier royalties on net sales after launch. So my best guess was that this uh, initial deal for PopReach to take the development project had to have been millions, which is what contributed to the steep increase in losses. They went from a minus 500k loss last quarter to now a minus $9 million loss this quarter, even when um, their game sales on Steam increased. So uh, they better hope that this time they're mobile game will actually launch and do well when it does. I hope so too. All right, second news item. This is an update on Embracer Group uh, with financial results and of course, more acquisitions to announce. This is by gamesindustry.biz from James Batchelor. Embracer Group's net sales for first quarter ended with $389 million Overall net sales for the company were up 66% for the three months ended June 30th when compared to the same period last year. 87% of their sales, or $339 million, comes from its game business, up 83% year-on-year. THQ Nordic was the largest contributor and showed the most growth, up 37% year-over-year to a $76.5 million. This was largely attributed to the launch of Biomutant, which has sold more than 1 million copies since launch at the end of May. Embracer added that the group recouped all of its costs, including development, marketing, and even acquisition of the creator of the game, Experiment 101, and the IP, within a week of launch. So congratulations to both the developers of Biomutant and Embracer for buying them. Continuing on, Saber Interactive was the only division to show decline. 
with net sales down 13% from $39.9 million to $34.9 million. This was attributed to a lack of new releases compared to last year's successful launch of SnowRunner. Earlier this year, Embracer made two significant acquisitions, which also contributed to the net sales. EasyBrain contributed $65.9 million of net sales, and Gearbox did $50 million. For reference, Embracer brought Easy, bought EasyBrain for a staggering $640 million and Gearbox for $1.3 billion. Although, note that much of the actual deal involved issuing, share, issuing value in shares or bonus covenants if they reached their contracted performance targets. The group's earnings before income tax depreciation and amortization rose by 59% to $171.5 million, while operating earnings before income tax was up 79% to $148.7 million. CEO Lars Wingfors said both sales and operational EBIT had set new company records. He also said the number of games in development across the group had risen to 180, although it's worth noting this includes titles that will be published by other companies such as Borderlands spin-off Tiny Tina's Wonderland, which will be published by 2K. And of course, Embracer as per tradition announced that they have acquired more game studios despite already having acquired 8 studios beginning of this month. This time they have acquired 3 studios, Demiurge Studios, Fractured Byte, and Smartphone Labs. All three firms were acquired through Embracer-owned Saber Interactive. The costs of the acquisitions remain undisclosed, but all involved an upfront payment in addition to potential earnouts based on performance over the next one to six years, which is very similar to how they did it with other studios' acquisitions like Gearbox. Demiurge Studios is best known for their free-to-play mobile titles such as Crazy Taxi, Gazillionaire, and Marvel Puzzle Quest and was owned by Sega's mobile division for five years before a management buyout took place last year. The acquisition is due to be completed by the end of August and brings a team of 68 developers into Saber. Embracer's management expects Demiurge to generate revenues of $15 million in 2021. Fractured Byte has experience with assisting with the development of Switch ports such as Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 and Borderlands Legendary Collection. Fun fact! Both these studios have previously worked with Borderlands developer Gearbox. Embracer is now just gobbling up companies' relationships of the companies that they have previously gobbled up. And finally, Russian software testing and, develop- and games development firm Smartphone Labs has been bought on board, uh, adding over 100 employees to Saber Interactive. The company already has a long-standing relationship with Saber, having worked together on ports such as Mudrunner for mobile and World War Z for Switch. All three companies retain their leadership as they have become part of Saber Interactive. Third news item. Now, this is an interesting round. So, Outriders developer doesn't even know how many copies of their own game sold. This is from PC Gamer by Molly Taylor. I even previously had a podcast topic dedicated to Outriders, praising how well they did with launching on Game Pass and their success but I guess not even themselves know about how they have actually performed. The article reads, Outriders developer People Can Fly says, it hasn't seen any royalties from Square Enix yet, and doesn't even know how many copies of the games were sold. The developer was due to receive royalties for the game's first quarter 45 days after its release, on August 16th. In an investor note that went out on Tuesday, People Can Fly says they have not been paid, suggesting that the game 
did not break even for Square Enix, which is a big oof on me and also for Square Enix, I guess. An executive at People Can Fly theorized that the cause may be related to the way Square Enix handles its, po- its sales policy, or things like Outriders Day 1 release on Xbox Game Pass impacting sales. The general consensus, however, seems to be that People Can Fly is, is relatively in the dark about just how successful its game has been. That executive goes on saying, quote, Working with a publisher has many advantages, but also its disadvantages. One of them is the low impact of People Can Fly on sales activities and the incompetence or, as in this case, the lack of data obtained from the publisher in this regard, end quote. He concluded by saying that being largely left out of the loop on Outriders sales is one of the reasons for the studio looking to self-publish future games. Earlier in April, the studio did release that they have reached 3.5 million unique players for the game, and this was one of my basis points for their success, and that I was saying if they could retain these players to the game, they could potentially convert them to spending consumers with, you know, expansion DLC or maybe cosmetic microtransactions for the future. Fourth news item, Epic Game Store begins closed beta for self-publishing, and this is from GamesIndustry.biz by James Batchelor again. Epic Games is introducing self-publishing options to its PC marketplace, starting with a closed beta program to stress test the system. A post on the company's website detailed the process for submission into the beta and said that successful applicants will be able to set up their own product pages, pricing and discounts, as well as upload builds and updates without the need for Epic Game Store team. It's a move that brings the store more in line with leading marketplace team and one of the company expects will help it grow faster than ever before. The store currently has 650 games and apps. The post also offered update statistics on Epic Game Store, which now has 58 million monthly active users. By comparison, Valve reported in January that Steam has 120 million monthly active users. However, Epic Games did specify that the beta is not open to VR-only games or non-game applications at this time, the company also emphasized that all multiplayer games must support crossplay across all other PC storefronts. Epic reiterated the type of content it does not accept on its game stores, including pornography, anything that infringes on IP not owned or licensed by the developer or publisher, or hateful, discriminatory, or illegal content. So this is good. This is a good move by Epic, actually. I never really thought and realized that Epic Games right now is operating more like the console publishers than what Steam is actually doing, and yeah, allowing for more self-publishing games operations I think will drive up the developer engagement more on the platform, and I'm sure in the future Epic will also allow for more tools for the developers. It's actually pretty cool that Epic now already has 58 monthly active users, but I gotta wonder, how many of them are there for Fortnite or Rocket League or any of the you know their own other free-to-play titles versus how many are also spending money on the store? That is always the end game question for me. How many are consumers using the different storefronts? Spending habits differ, or if they are willing, or if there's you know a different willingness to spend on, let's say, Steam uh, over Epic Game Store. My guess is that Steam has a wider winning gap compared to that of the user base difference. Ever since Epic Games. Uh, came into the competition, Steam has also been pushing to differentiate itself 
more in terms of consumer quality of life experience for using its storefront. But I'm always hoping that Epic can catch up before the gap widens too much. Why? Because competition is always welcome in my books. Lastly, I want to do a kind of a required reading part again. So recently on Twitter, an indie dev by the name of Jake came out with their experiences of being approached by a big publisher who wanted to make a contract with him for his game. And it turns out the contract is kind of full of traps, some of which is quite shocking. And I'll definitely post uh, the link to his Twitter thread for you guys to read. But from here, I'll just highlight some of the things he said. Here's some background information first. He was approached by a publisher that wanted to contract him his game with about $500,000 worth of investment and that he is also a sole developer. He noted that he fully expects that there's no way a publisher wouldn't invest a six-figure number without risk mitigation. It was just that the degree of control and penalization went far beyond what he thinks anyone should accept. So here, so if the contract was breached, One, the publisher keeps the right to sell the game and the dev loses uh, their royalty. So basically they keep 100% of the revenue. Two, the dev pays them back all the money ever given to him and all development costs yet to come for them to finish the game without the dev with no limit to what the budget or cost may be. So he then explains that pretty much that would put him in debt for in perpetuity which I fully believe because he's just one person and that that would be a minimum of 500k. So I know it's pretty much unreasonable from there. Breaching the contract is really easy to trigger for him. Uh, that's why he said, though he didn't really go too much in, in depth with examples of triggering the breaches. For the publishers, breaching the contract won't do much for them since they protected themselves with lofty and vague wording such as doing, quote, reasonably best, end quote, of their end of their job. Now for the revenue share, it's stated 50-50, but that is only until 24,000 copies of the games have been sold first. Until then, it's actually 100% to the publisher and 0% to the dev. And also, if you have reached the covenant, the publisher doesn't start paying you your share until 30 days after the end of the quarter, i.e. up to four months past when it's actually due, and can withhold expected returns up to three months more. He then ends with some very good wisdom for all indie devs out there, either looking for publishers or being approached by them. This is what he has to say. When you get the contract, read the contract, skip to the terms of termination and check what happens if if something goes wrong. Check how often and how quickly you get paid and what visibility you have into the accounting process. Check how disagreements are solved resolved, sorry, and what triggers penalization. Check that they are actually, they actually have to launch your game. And I'll just end this with what Jonathan Blow, the creator of Blade and The Witness had to say about this. Quote, the reason these contracts exist is because so many indies are bad at business and sign them. That said, the we are shocked you won't sign these terms is a lie. They know how bad the terms are. They're just plain dumb because most indies presented with that response sign, end quote. That is it for this week's news. We're going to take a really quick break before going into the topic of the week. Let me start up front with this. I fully expect this week's topic segment to be super short. 
guys, I had a hard time coming up with anything inspirational um, in terms of topics to discuss. If you're wondering, why won't I just skip the topic then, like I did for E3? Well, it's kind of different. Now, I told myself I'll do one topic per episode, and the E3 episodes were kind of special because it was an E3 week, so I kind of also want to enjoy the invent- events and not think about a topic. Well, this week, I just had a lack of inspira- inspiring thoughts. So anyways, a couple of days ago, you know, I was just lying on the bed, sort of emptying my mind, because I was struggling to think of a topic for too long, and I suddenly thought of Dishonored and Prey. These are games I often just, you know, have pop up in my head regularly. You know, they kind of live in my mind rent-free, I guess you can say. If you listened um, to me since a while ago, you might know that Bioshock is one of my favorite games of all time. So it goes without saying that I'm also a massive fan of both Dishonored and Prey. Not only can you immediately sense the inspirations they got from Bioshock, but it's actually super apparent when you learn that the creative developers helped uh, work on Bioshock. So back to my thought on Dishonored and Prey. Once I started to reminisce on these games, almost immediately I'm saddened by the fact that these game franchises are now placed in a cryostasis chamber by developers forever without an end date. Why? Well, because they didn't sell well enough. Now Arcane is actually doing Deathloop, which also has a lot of inspirational inspirations from previous games. But now they are, I guess, more action-y, you know? My, my guess is they're trying to do that to attract more action shooter genre gamers, you know, more of the casual gamers. I truly hope they do well, though, because their games have always felt good to play and critically acclaimed by pretty much all that have played their games. But they just don't sell enough for the parent company to be satisfied with their continuation of the franchise. That company in question is indeed Zenimax. Which, you know, they've recently been purchased by Microsoft. And that is a good brand new home for them for sure. The games living on Game Pass massively increased the service's value. But, you know, these games are kind of premium games. Which is why I have this annoying feeling in myself for thinking that... You know, and and why shouldn't these games belong with the other full $60 retail crowd? Why are they subjugated to being on Game Pass? Not that there's anything wrong with being on Game Pass. Then I thought that, you know, I've talked a lot about why would Microsoft purchase ZeniMax. Why it's good for them and their future plans. But I've never really looked across the board and asked myself, so why did ZeniMax sell themselves to Microsoft again? They're also a massive titan in the games industry. They have Bethesda, the creators of the massive Skyrim and Fallout franchise, and they also have future hype titles like Starfield and another Skyrim on the horizon. The reason, I personally think, lies with what happened with Arcane. Not just Arcane, though, but really most of their subsidiary studio game releases over the last couple of years. For example, over the last five years, we had big titles such as Dishonored 2, Prey, The Evil Within 2, Wolfenstein 2, The New Colossus, Fallout 76, Rage 2, Wolfenstein Youngblood, and most recently last year's Doom Eternal. Most of these games I just listed were fantastic games and worthy sequels to its franchises, such as Dishonored, uh, Dishonored 2, Evil Within 2, Wolfenstein 2, and Doom Eternal. And all of them except for Doom Eternal did poorly in sales. Dishonored 
One sold about 460,000 units in its first week, while Dishonored 2 sold 40% lower than that on launch. It only managed to move 2.5 million copies on console and PC combined in the end. And this compared to Dishonored selling more than 3 million copies on PC alone in the end. Both Wolfenstein 2 and Evil Within 2 couldn't even get into the top 10 spots for NDP, NPD numbers, uh, the month it came out. Wolfenstein 2 came at 14th place and Evil Within 2 came at 13th place. Prey was a great game, but had a horrible launch that was just marred with game-breaking bugs that even prevented journalists from finish playing the game. Fallout 76, well, I mean, you should know about that horrible fiasco. And Rage 2 also did way worse than its predecessor. Only Doom Eternal managed to report glowing profits. More than 3 million copies sold in the first week, three times higher sold than Doom 2016, and it also broke its predecessor's Steam record with an average of over 100,000 concurrent players. In less than a year after release, Doom Eternal reported over $450 million in profits. I guess what I'm getting at is that, sure, ZeniMax won't go bankrupt or really ever disappear. However, it's uh, pretty apparent its recent performances show that it has been losing a lot of steam, losing a lot of growth. Let's not comment on its underperforming single-player titles, despite most, most of them would definitely get a recommendation by me. But I mean, just look at their biggest one, Fallout 76, which came out of the prestigious and well-beloved by so many, which is Bethesda themselves. The game and the launch of that was so bad. It was real bad, guys. That game was supposed to be the company's service game, Moneymaker. Unfortunately, even now, I don't think the game is saved yet. The saving grace, I think, was that they saw a good opportunity with Microsoft. And Microsoft saw the same with them. They offered them good money and have had a good working relationship with them before. I think ZeniMax saw that you know, Game Pass has great potential and it'll ease the dropping sales issues and it'll help, on the other side, it'll definitely help bolster Game Pass value for Microsoft themselves. Why? Well, because these games are good. It's just the problem that they don't sell. And with that said, I'll end it here today. Thank you all for listening. If you wish to follow me, you can find me at GameBizPod on Twitter. Tune in next week for another and I'll see you later. Bye.